Will you pray with me? Our Father, we just thank you for the time we have to gather this morning to worship you. We thank you for the privilege it is to be a part of your body. God, as we prepare to spend a few minutes in your word this morning, we would ask that you'd be kind in helping us to see Jesus. And as we see Jesus more and more clearly this morning, Lord, we'd ask that you would enable us to follow Jesus more closely. And as we follow him more closely each and every day, God, we pray that our love for him would grow stronger and stronger in light of your beautiful grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this week, all across the U.S., Americans everywhere will celebrate the 4th of July, our Independence Day. And this is a really fun time of the year, isn't it? We do things like picnics and cookouts and go camping and spend a lot of time with family But without any doubt or uncertainty, this time of the year will always include one thing and lots of it, loud noises, right? I'm sure you can relate to that. We as Americans like to make loud noises on the 4th of July, don't we? However, for some people, the loud noise that comes during this time of the year can bring a lot of anxiety and even fear because of past trauma that they've experienced. Recent news articles have actually offered tips and suggestions for dealing with the noise, including things like earmuffs, noise-canceling headphones, and ironically, fans, air conditioners, and noise machines, all in an attempt to escape the noise. But you know, it's not just around 4th of July that we experience all this noise. Study after study has actually shown that we live in an increasingly noisy world. There's more sound and ambient noise constantly surrounding us than ever before. There's even this term, noise pollution, to describe it. And there's actually a lot of studies coming out showing how negatively it's affecting people's health. But you know, I don't think outside noise is the only noise that we oftentimes feel overwhelmed by. What about inside noise? What about the noise that comes from a schedule that never seems to end? What about the noise that comes from broken family relationships that have you unsure what to do? What about the noise from the constant weight and expectations from the people around you? What do you do with that noise? In an increasingly noisy world, we also see a corresponding rise in things like anxiety, discontentment, depression. You know, as a, as a high school pastor, I'm constantly talking with student after student who is struggling in these areas and helping friends who are struggling in these areas. And it's really heartbreaking. And what about for those, who are, those of us who are followers of Jesus? Does the noise in our lives look any different? In Psalm 131, David makes this really bold claim. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And as you think about what a calm and quiet soul looks like, let me ask you, is that true of you? This morning, we're going to spend some time in Psalm 131, and I want to see what we might learn from David about what this calm and quiet soul looks like. 
But before we jump into the actual psalm, I want to read for you a different version of that psalm. And I want you to just listen to these words. And as you hear them, and we'll have it up on the screen, you can read them. Think about how they might reveal some of the reasons why we're constantly struggling with all this noise around us and inside of us. It says this. Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself and my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. So what I just read for you is what David Paulson calls the anti-Psalm 131. And that is everything opposite of what Psalm 131 is actually saying. And I think this is a really helpful tool for getting getting us to see the areas of our lives that this psalm is really getting at. So as we prepare to spend some time in Psalm 131 this morning, I do have to confess that for a lot of my life as a believer, I don't think I've really loved and valued the Psalms the way that I should have been. And I think a large part of that stems from the fact that we don't often use the Psalms the way that they are intended to be used by us. And the thing that really changed and challenged the way I viewed the Psalms is getting, them to, getting to see that the intention of the Psalms isn't to just be read and studied as another book of the Bible, but rather these are actually to become our daily prayers. We're called to make its words our words. I like what the church father Athanasius says. He says, most of scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. And then Christopher Ashe builds on that when he says this. They are not just response. They are authorized response. The words God gives us with which to speak up to him. They are the word from God to be spoken to God. In other words, they teach us to pray. And it wasn't until I started to view the Psalms in this way as they taught me how to properly speak and interact with God that they really began to saturate every area of my life. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 131 together, I have a couple challenges for you. And the first one is this. Before you leave this room this morning, I want to challenge you to memorize Psalm 131. And maybe you hear that and you're like, whoa, pastor, I didn't come here this morning expecting to do that kind of work, or I'm not really sure if I'm capable of doing that. Let me just give you the gentle reminder that just a week ago, we had a couple hundred kids in this very room for VBS joyfully memorizing God's word. Now, I don't have cool hand motions like Pastor Tim had. He was really good at those. But Psalm 131, it's one of the shortest psalms. It's only three verses. But at the same time, this is what Charles Spurgeon said about it. He said, one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn. So my second challenge for you this morning is that as we study what this psalm is teaching us, and as we're committing it to memory and putting it in our hearts, make this psalm your prayer. 
as you began to understand its meaning and purpose, allow it to draw you into a deeper love and commitment to God. So as we go through the psalm this morning, we're going to continually recite it together as a congregation to help us in this memorization. So it'll be up on the screen every time we're going to go verse by verse through it. But to start out this morning, let's read together Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. That was pretty good. We'll get better as we keep doing it. So a little background about the psalm before we dive into it. This psalm is identified as of one of 15 of the Psalms of Ascent. And it's one of four that were written by King David. In these psalms, they would have been sung and meditated and prayed by the people of God as they pilgrimed towards the city of Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts. So it was sung by the people of God as they prepared their hearts to approach the presence of God and worship him. It's important we keep that in mind as we're studying it. And two things that I want us to keep in mind about David, the author. First, remember that David was chosen by God that he was anointed, that he was blessed, and God was with him. Then second, remember that David loved the Lord. He walked daily with the Lord. So this psalm is giving us this inside access to the prayer of a man who was chosen by, by God, who loved God, and who had learned the type of composure it takes to calm and quiet his soul before his God. And that's what David is going to invite us into as well. And you know, we, we don't know the specific event that happened in David's life that caused him to pen this psalm, but we know that it had to be something that was incredibly impactful, right? Something that teaches him the only true and lasting composure. In this psalm, David's going to show us three things. He's going to show us the result of what this looks like in his life, He's going to show us the process in which it happens, and he's going to show us the reason why it's possible. So we're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to see the process. So read with me again verse 1 of Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. So David starts by giving us three distinct characteristics of what this calm and quieted soul has produced in his life. But all three of these things have to do with the exact same thing, pride. And the first thing that we need to understand is that pride stands in direct opposition to a calm and quiet soul. I like what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He said, pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. So the first place that David looks for this pride is in his heart. Because the Bible describes the heart as the very center for who we are as humans. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. 
Then Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So David's first declaration is that his heart is without pride. So then David moves from his heart to his eyes or to his gaze. And he specifically says his eyes aren't haughty or they're not raised too high. And the thing we need to realize is that if we have pride in our hearts, then it's not going to stay there. It's going to spill out of our hearts into our relationships. Because the thing about pride is it's not just about us, but pride's also about other people. It's the way we see other people, the way we compare ourselves to other people. It's what causes us to look at other people and make judgments about their value and their worth. If there's pride in our heart, it's not going to stay there. So David examines his heart. He examines his eyes or his gaze. And then the final place he looks is his actions or his pursuits, the things that he chases after in life. And here David recognizes that there are things that he is called to pursue and things he is called not to pursue. And, you know, I think this statement might sound a little bit strange for us, maybe even countercultural to us. Because what have we always been told since we were little children? You can be anything you want to be when you grow up, right? If you work really hard and you buckle down, there's nothing you can't accomplish. But is that really a God-centered view for how we are to pursue things in this life? How much of the noise in our lives is contributed to the way we're constantly chasing after the next big thing? Let me ask, do you have contentment with the gifts and the abilities and the calling that God has given you right now? Are you okay with the fact that there are things that you're not called to chase after? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we don't need to grow in our gifts, in our calling, in our abilities. But if we lack real joy and contentment in serving God the way that he's called us to serve him right now, the results will be devastating. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, many through wishing to be great have failed to be good. They were not content to adorn the lowly stations which the Lord appointed them. So they have rushed at grandeur and power and found destruction where they looked for honor. That's convicting. The things that God has called each one of us to are good. But if we think we know something greater, then we'll miss out on the good. We need to pray that God will give us wisdom and discernment as we seek to serve him and his kingdom. So David's calm and quiet soul has produced in him a heart that is not proud, a view of others that is not arrogant, and a pursuit that is not self-seeking. Guys, I hope it's clear. The point of this psalm this morning isn't to view this first verse as this checklist of things we need to strive after in our lives. But rather, we're going to see that these are all things that have been produced by the process he's about to give us in verse 2. So let's together read again verses one and two. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like a weaned child. So the process we see David go through is becoming like that of a weaned child. 
And I have to be honest, when I first started studying this psalm, this wasn't an analogy that hit me as particularly impactful. But as I began to further understand what David's saying here, it's very profound. And I want to draw back on the imagery of a nursing child from our anti-Psalm 131. This is what Paulson wrote. He said, like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant, I'm restless with demands and worries. Think about the state of a hungry infant that's demanding the instant gratification that comes with the milk it receives from its mother. That infant is absolutely restless until it gets what it wants. All it can think about is getting that next meal. And you know, he's not primarily concerned with the relationship with the, mo- with the mother. He's more focused on what the mother can give him. Now contrast that with a child that's gone through the weaning process. And anybody who's familiar with this process knows it's not an easy one, not for the child or for the mother. The child isn't able to understand why the mother would deny them this gift that they so desperately want. And the child experiences things like frustration and anger and confusion and grief. And to even further highlight how David would have viewed this process, in his Eastern culture, it was normal for kids to continue nursing until three, four, maybe even five years old. So add in the increased cognitive and verbal abilities of a child that age, and the process becomes even more difficult. I don't know how much experience you have with children that age, but I currently have a three and a five-year-old who I love dearly, but anytime I want to deny them of something they think they need, something they want, it's a battle. (laughs) Yeah, they have a strong will. It's not a will that's easily broken, but at the end of the weaning process, the child comes to a place where even though they still can't fully comprehend why, it's best that they no longer get the milk from the mother. They trust that the mother knows best. Even though the reason is still too great for them to understand, they've accepted the will of the mother. And even more, now this weaned child can experience a type of relationship with the mother that goes beyond simply what he can receive from her. Now when the child comes to the mother, he can think more than with his stomach. He can think with his heart. He used to be the most preoccupied by what the mother can give him, and now he can enjoy the giver of the gift. He's taken the first step into a more mature state where he can flourish for the rest of his life. And that's the picture that David gives us for how we are to obtain a calm and quiet soul. We come to God, not looking for what we can get, but rather to experience the love and the intimacy that comes from a relationship with him. We trust him, knowing that even when we can't understand, even when the reason is too great for us, that he knows what's best. And it's his very presence that calms and quiets our souls. And you know, the truth is, our whole lives are going to be a weaning process. We're going to have to constantly be denied the things that we think are best and submit our will to the one who truly knows what's best. But that's exactly why Jesus says anyone who wants to follow him must deny themselves. So we've seen the result in David's life. 
We've seen the process in which it takes place. And then finally, David shows us, a, shows us in verse 3 the reason why it's possible. And I want you to notice here that David moves from talking to God to talking to the people of God. So let's read all three verses together again. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. So having experienced the joy and the satisfaction that comes from a calm and quiet intimacy with God, David then urges the people of God to put their hope by faith in the Lord and in his promises. And it was a hope that David knew was there for him that very day. And it was a hope that David knew would last forever. But you know, the interesting thing here is that David doesn't tie this call for hope into any of God's specific promises. If you look back on Psalm 130, right before this psalm, there's a similar call for Israel to put their hope into God. But then it's tied specifically into God's unfailing love and the promise that he will redeem Israel from their sins. But we don't have a specific promise like that in this verse. And I don't think it would be wrong to apply any of God's promises throughout Scripture to why we should put our hope in him here. But I want to think for a minute about one specific promise that David has. Think about what we know of David's life. We don't know exactly when he penned this psalm, but as we read these bold words he uses to describe himself, a heart that's not proud, eyes that are not haughty, a pursuit that's not too great for himself, and as we compare that with the way that we know David struggled throughout his life, they just don't match up with how he often lived, do they? Surely there are times in David's life when his heart did have pride, when his pursuits were beyond him, when he misused his power and took advantage of other people. Think about the times in David's life when his family was in shambles. His kingdom was being torn apart and his relationships were a disaster. Surely during those times, he was anything but calm and quiet before the Lord. But David had a promise. This promise was that there is a coming king who could sing, pray, and live out this psalm in a far greater way than he ever could. David has the promise of 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord says to him, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. David places his hope in the coming king, and that king is King Jesus. Who can say with complete and total honesty for their whole life that they had never had pride in their heart? No one but King Jesus. Who can say that their eyes were never haughty, that in every single relationship they ever had, they lived out perfect humility and love and compassion? No one other than King Jesus. Who can say that they have not chased after things that are too great or too wondrous for them? But, but what is beyond King Jesus? 
through whom all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Church, he is the body, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. What is too great for that King Jesus? Surely nothing, but though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. The king of the universe submitted himself to the position of a servant so that he might be obedient to the will of the Father. Who has calmed and quieted their soul quite like King Jesus, who experienced deep intimacy and with the Father. Church, Psalm 131 may have been penned by King David, but it gives us a beautiful picture of the life of King Jesus. One of my challenges for you this morning was to, as we learn this psalm, as we commit it to our hearts, to make it our prayer. But who can truly pray these words? Who but Jesus can say that these things are true of themselves? Not one of us has faithfully lived out this psalm. Yet at the same time, everyone who is in Christ can pray this psalm. What does it mean to be in Christ? But now in Christ, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As by faith, you put your hope into Christ, draw near to his presence, allow him to calm and quiet the storms in your soul. Our prayer is that through Christ, this psalm might become more and more true of us each and every day. Why is it so important that we learn to love and value and read and pray the psalms? Because they show us Jesus in such a beautiful way. And they invite us to pray his prayers. I know everyone may not have this psalm completely memorized yet this morning, but maybe by the end of the day you will. Write it down somewhere where you'll constantly be reminded of it. It's been the lock screen on my phone for the last three months, and it's been really encouraging for me. But one last time together, let's pray this psalm. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. Do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the time in this psalm this morning. We thank you for this beautiful picture of the life of King Jesus. God, most of all, we thank you that King Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that while we were still far off, God, that Jesus, by his blood, has drawn us near to you. We pray that each and every day of our lives, 
might be a sacrifice to the one true king. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.